This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with Nicole LaForest, who you might know on Insta as at Veterinary Technicians. Nicole has achieved an incredible amount in a short amount of time. She graduated high school early and in her junior and senior years was already studying college subjects. Not long after finishing high school, Nicole had a degree in cognitive psychology and has since obtained a degree in human health care management and associate degrees in veterinary technology and music. Nicole was a qualified vet tech managing an ER practice at 22 and at 27 now co-owns an ambulatory practice with her husband and lectures and campaigns around the world. Nicole's practice is 100% surgery, almost all orthopedic, with some really cool regenerative medicine and complex soft tissue cases too. If you're not already following her on Insta, I highly recommend tuning in to see all the cutting edge surgeries, toys and cases. Aside from her skills and knowledge, Nicole is well known in our industry for her humour and candour. She didn't disappoint on any of those fronts. I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Very welcome. Now, I know you listen to a lot of podcasts and you've also appeared on quite a few. I've listened to two anyway. So what are some of your favorite podcasts? Oh, so... Oh, that's so hard. I feel like if I don't mention them all, then I'm going to get no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure, but all the pressure. Um, So I um, have uh, been on a blunt dissection. That was one that I recorded at VMX, um, which is our the large veterinary conference that we have in Orlando, Florida, um, every January. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did that uh, with Dr. Dave uh, Nichol. Um, So um, definitely it was it was fun for us to record. Um, And then the one that I did right after that was also a huge favorite of mine um, with podcast of it. And that was with Dr. Arnold at Western Vet in, um, in Las Vegas. I love both of those. They're both so different, but I but I, I like both of them for for um for what they bring. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And where are you from, and where do you live at the moment? Uh, so I am from uh, New York State, uh, which you know everyone knows um, the U.S. You know we. We always tell um, international people, oh, when you think of the U.S., you know, what do you think of? You think of, you know, New York, which is on the East Coast, and California, and anywhere else is completely irrelevant. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I am originally from upstate New York. Um, I live mm-hmm. in Washington State, which is um, just two states above California. So now I live on the West Coast. I thought that you'd gone from East Coast to West yeah. Coast. Yeah, because yeah, I know sort of New York down to Miami because I've got uh-huh. um, relatives in Oh, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, um, oh, way Florida. Cool. Yeah. Wow. So, and wow. I've flown into New York and then done the Amtrak down the coast there. So that's what I know, which is why I was like, when I listened to a couple of your podcasts, I'm like, oh, I think she's gone east to west coast. What made yep. you make the big journey across to the other side? 
So it was um, it was somewhat of um, an interesting story. So I was dating um, a guy at the time, and of course, it's never a good idea to move for um, anybody that you're dating. Um, but I did so, <laughs> I did so anyway. Um, yeah. When I graduated high school, so uh, we both wanted to go to school out on the west coast. Yeah. Um, he wanted to go to culinary uh, school, and he's actually a chef now. And I figured that I would just go to college. And um, at the time, I wasn't in uh, the profession, in the veterinary profession. Mm-hmm. So I um, was like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll, I'll go with you. Um, you know, this seems like a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. So we actually, um, you know, got our life, put it in a car, took our dog with us, and then we um, drove across. Wow. Uh, the states yeah to Washington state and that's where we actually um been ever since I think 2011 we moved at the beginning yeah. of 2011 so um yeah we both went to college out here both are doing really well since we separated but um yeah I I could not imagine living anywhere else I just I absolutely love the west coast well, good on you for taking the plunge and moving. And sometimes yeah. you think that the universe is taking you, you know, somewhere for one reason and then later you realise it was another. Exactly. Absolutely. That is definitely true. And so when you first moved across, was that when you were studying um, psychology or? Um, so I actually uh, graduated um, high school early and for yeah. my um, for my junior and my senior year before I graduated, I entered into college for um, half of my day essentially. So the morning it would be high school classes and then my afternoon would be full of college classes. So I was already uh, mostly done with my psychology degree by the time I had graduated high school. Are you and like then... Doogie Hauser or something? <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's interesting. It's actually, um, it's really common in New York State for uh, the school system to do that with their high school students. Yeah. And I, when I had left uh, New York, I lived um, with um, my boyfriend at the time, we had moved to Maryland briefly. And so I was able to just uh, switch colleges and finish my degree there before we moved out to the West Coast. That's great. And yeah. how did you get your foot in the door with being a veterinary technician? And also apologies, because I will slip between, I will try and say veterinary technician, but I will probably say vet nurse. And I, totally fine. I know from your, um, <laughs> I know from your explanation on one of the podcasts I've heard you on that it is a protected term in the States yeah. and that you guys don't refer to yourselves as veterinary nurses. So just a yeah. disclaimer, if you hear me say vet nurse, veterinary technician. Totally fine. Absolutely. Totally fine. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Dave was like that too on, on um, his podcast. I'm like, it's fine. You know, I'm That's like, right. I, totally, I totally get it. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but so when I had moved out to the West Coast, I um, was actually a waitress um, for um, maybe you've heard of a company, um, Peterbilt Trucks or Kenworth Trucks. I know they are yes. pretty famous uh, internationally. I actually, I was, I don't know how I got the job looking back. I actually was uh, a waitress for um, the CEO of the company. Uh, So I had worked there and he had a lot of, you know, really nice dogs. And so, you know, I had gotten my psychology degree. I had, at that time, I had a degree, well, I still do, um, in music. And that's, you know, that's not really a degree that I feel is going to carry me through my adult life. Um, So I wanted something that would be fulfilling. And as I've mentioned, um, you know, previously, 
um, I just wanted to be a public servant of some sort. And so I was, um, I had gotten this brochure in the mail for a local uh, college um, in the town that I was living in, and it had um, a program for veterinary assistance. And um, so I had originally thought I read it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I just kind of quickly browsed through it and I'm like, oh, cool, you get to be a vet tech and it'll only take you six weeks. And that's (laughs) that's normally, you know, a degree program. So I had paid for it. I had showed up and it was, I was, it was the wrong course. You're um, like, this doesn't but, feel complex enough. Maybe yeah. I'm just super smart or maybe yeah, it's yeah. not actually what I thought it was. It was, it was so bad, but um, I did it anyway because it was, it, it was great. Um, you know, it was a great starter program, I would say. Exactly. Kind of gave me, yeah, an introduction to what the profession was about. Yeah. Um, I, I had gotten a job during the program and oh my goodness, I just was so knocked down a peg <laughs> when I had come yeah. out, when I went into, um, you know, clinical practice, I, it was so bad. I'm just getting massive flashbacks on all the things <laughs> I thought I knew. And then, yeah. you know, I had absolutely no clue what I was doing or what I was even talking about. Yeah, it's a known um, phenomena. I was listening to This American Life recently and it was uh, an episode I think called In Defense of Ignorance and it basically explains psychological studies. They would get high school students or college students to sit uh, an examination and then Mm -hmm. they would um, survey them at the end and say, how do you think you did? And um, people who did quite poorly on the test often thought that they did really, really well because the same gauge um, that they or the same level of knowledge that they had to sit the test was the same level of knowledge they had to assess how well they thought they did on it. So, And the people that did quite well, um, they didn't underestimate how well they did, but they overestimated how well they thought other people did. So they tended to think uh. that they would come out slightly lower. But yeah, it was basically saying that that's the really sad thing about ignorance is that you know the the more you know the more you know you don't know but if you don't know it's easy to think like I have got this like I know everything um, and you don't know that you're ignorant so it is a very dangerous space to occupy. 100% I completely agree with that and I feel like I'm gonna have to have to listen to that that's so so true. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. It was very yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so you got knocked down a few pegs, and then um, I know you did go and do your vet tech qualification and yes. um, worked your way up and up yes. to basically you were managing an emergency center um, in the end. How long was that um, pathway from um, being the graduate VA to being the the qualified vet tech and managing um, a practice? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it was really, that's a really good question because um, it didn't take very long. And in hindsight, mm-hmm. at the age of 22, I probably should not have been managing a practice. Um, Mm. but it it did not take me very long at all. I would say, Mm um, maybe within, oh gosh, two years, but I, I also, yeah, it was, it was very quick. Um, but, uh, previously I had, um, some work experience in, um, managerial roles. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I think um, because one of my degrees is in cognitive psychology, I I think, and this is just purely speculation, that I think my boss thought I had a better understanding of people than what I actually (laughs) do or did at the time. (laughs) Yeah. So it was not very long. Um, A lot of my hardships and a lot of my... um, you know, with the extent of what I've had to learn, um, has been while I've been trying to lead others. Um, so it, I would say maybe about two years. And that was at the point where I started um, to step into a managerial role of um, starting to manage an ER practice. Yeah, yeah. I can sort of identify with you on that because um, until, so my husband and I bought our practice from just a sole um, vet operating out in the rainforest in the middle of nowhere with just a handful of clients. And when we first moved up here, I was a solicitor and he, my husband was a vet, but they offered to sell us this practice and he wanted to retire. And so we bought it and I enrolled in my certificate qualification as a veterinary nurse, but I'd only been studying, I think for about 10 months before we opened and I wasn't fully qualified yet. And that was at the end of 2013 and I didn't finish until the end of 2014. And in that meantime, I was managing other veterinary nurses and managing a business and managing a team. And even though the first day that the phone rang, you know, clients were saying, I'd like to book my dog in for a spay. And I'd be like, sure, boy or girl, like no (laughs) idea about anything. And in hindsight, I'm like, I can't believe I did that, you know, because obviously I know a lot more now, but um, sometimes you do just have to learn while you're going and learn while you're leading other people. And if someone comes to you with a question, say, well, I don't know, but let's figure it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the more that we speak to other uh, professionals in our industry, I think we're finding that we all have that type of um, story leading up to our um, management roles, Yeah, uh, where we were kind of either just thrown into it, or maybe we felt that we weren't ready. um, Or maybe we were just flat out not ready for that position. But um, that's that's just so it's so interesting and especially um with the practice that you were mentioning is that the practice that you and your husband currently still own we do so we bought it as just one so the vet that owned it prior just worked by himself he didn't own a computer it was all handwritten notes one day a week his neighbor came over and helped as an unscrubbed (laughs) assistant with just routine de-sexing and everything. Um, And then we opened and worked with my husband as the vet plus me plus one other nurse. So basically Mm -hmm. one vet plus two support staff every day for a couple of years. And now we have three vets and seven support staff and work with two vets and four support staff every day. So it's kind of just grown. and That's um, incredible. Yeah, and I very much had to learn by the seat of my pants and I am the first to put my hand up and say there's still so much more to learn. But I think you're right. I think a lot of veterinary nurses and technicians, especially working in um, general practice, once you start getting promoted or showing initiative or showing potential the end game for you is kind of the owners going well you'll be the practice manager and yeah like, exactly um, but guys <laughs> like I don't know how to manage an inbox or I don't know exactly. how to do a spreadsheet or so <laughs> I think that there there are a whole bunch of people probably sitting there with massive imposter syndrome just going oh my god I, I'm managing and I have no idea what I'm doing 
100%. I absolutely agree with that. And now you're managing an even bigger business um, because yeah. that, that can lead me into where you currently work, your role and what you do from day to day, which is just, um, again, so, so impressive for where you're at in your career at this stage. Um, yeah. So right now, um, I, I definitely have upgraded um, from where I previously worked. Um, not so much just uh, with my responsibilities, but also with my uh, with my confidence and just how far my practice can reach. Um, yeah. So yeah, so now um, I uh, co-own an ambulatory practice uh, with my husband. And so we're um, 100% uh, surgery, but uh, we're pretty much almost exclusively orthopedics. Mm -hmm. Um, we do a lot in regenerative medicine and we do a lot of complex soft tissue surgeries as well. Mm -hmm. Um, we go in our area in Washington state. Um, so we're based out of the Seattle area and, um, we go to about, uh, 32 hospitals in our area. Um, Mm -hmm. we don't have a set schedule and we kind of just travel around as needed, um, offering pets around our area surgeries, um, within the comfort of the regular vet's office. So, Mm -hmm. um, we definitely have quite a large um, client base, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and we definitely are uh, extremely um, busy and very fortunate for the business that we've had. But um, my my husband has owned uh, this practice, I want to say, for about 15 years now. Mm-hmm. So he's been pretty much a staple in the community for quite some time. And before that, he owned uh, two hospitals himself. So um, he, you know, he's been well known. And then when I got on board with him about, I want to say maybe almost five years ago, mm-hmm. um, we've definitely uh, grown uh, quite largely since uh, since that time. So, um, yes, I, I, I just I'm absolutely just astonished with, you know, this um, just basically this uh, community that we've built up within um, like a micro community, if you will. So um, mm-hmm. just because we have all these hospitals that maybe don't know each other or maybe don't even like each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and we, we tr- we're friends with everybody at the hospitals and, you know, we, we talk about each other. And then especially when we got married, we, we got all of those individuals <laughs> into one room and now they're all friends. And so, yeah, so it's just, it's been um, absolutely wonderful. And especially as time goes on, I just feel like it's, um, you know, it's just getting easier to um, communicate and especially to work with all of our, all of our coworkers, which is probably close to about a thousand at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I love the concept of an ambulatory service and I, there's probably going to be at some point in this interview, what will feel like a Spanish inquisition by me (laughs) because I've got all these questions about the ins and outs of how it goes. But I think it's important to have players like you and your husband in the industry um, because I had an episode with um, another uh, veterinary nurse in Australia and it was all about finding your tribe and we spoke yes. about how important it is to sort of transcend those um, interclinic boundaries and actually question them and say well can't we still be you know supportive of each other and within the same tribe um, you know looking after each other even though we might be competing for clients and so I think it's important to have players like um, yourselves but also just even reps um, who go around and say you know what these guys down the road are trying really hard too and they're actually um, quite nice and why don't you all yeah, come to exactly. our wedding and we'll all be friends yeah absolutely and that um that is, is such a good point because um you know with a lot of the hospitals that we go to 
a lot of those connections were, um, you know, that were through um, reps for companies or yeah. a lot of our friends within the hospitals maybe now are industry reps. And mm. so when they when they go around, they're like, hey, you know, don't don't talk about, you know, this person this way. You don't know them, you know, and let's, mm. you know, let's get a big conference together. Let's all meet and then have this huge, um, you know, team building exercise, even though you don't work directly with them. How can we better promote and flourish a positive, you know, working experience, even if they're your direct competitors? Yeah, that's right. And like Absolutely. people deserve to be given a chance. I've had uh, one nurse come and work for us from another practice and she confided in me a few months in that um, one of the someone at another practice that she had worked at and a, quite a senior person had said of me, oh, I hear she's really difficult to work for. And then she huh. sort of confided in me down the track like, I really like working with you. I, I don't understand why she said that. And I was like, this is a human who has never laid eyes on me, never spoken a word to me I don't know where this is coming from and it really just annoyed me so I do think we need to um, restrain ourselves from making those comments about people that we don't know and yeah try and try and keep it all positive Mm -hmm. look I imagine a big part of what you're doing just from my own experience is the administrivia of running a business which is huge and then aside from from that or you know you can talk on that too but can you describe your role and what you're doing from day to day so um, my role, I'm just going to say real quick, we actually, um, at the beginning of this month, because we've grown so massively, we actually hired somebody um, to do our administrative work. That's um, great. I saw you I looking know. for that. Yes. And I'm, yeah, because I was looking um, when we were, when I was in Australia. Yeah. And yep. um, so she is absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, and I have been stepping away from doing that administrative work um, because that's not why I went to college. No. Um, exactly. And but before that, I was the individual that would do all of our bookkeeping. So we do have an accountant, of course, but I did mm-hmm. all of our bookkeeping, all of Same. our scheduling. Yeah. If there was ever a complaint, I would, you know, I would handle those um, yep. and then trying to make it so that our days would flow smoothly when we would mm-hmm. travel to hospital to hospital. So we mm-hmm. go to about four hospitals a day. And mm-hmm. so making sure that we're on our game and that we're scheduled appropriately so that our hospitals aren't standing around and waiting for us because mm-hmm. they have patients, too, that they have to attend to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was essentially um, my role beforehand. So I would say that maybe that was about about 30 percent of what I would uh, what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, otherwise, I would um, I assist my um, my husband in surgery. Uh, you know, I make the anesthetic protocols, run them by him, make sure that, you know, he's happy with the drugs that I've chosen. I've mm-hmm. done, you know, I do a lot with client education, of course, mm-hmm. uh, follow up calls. Um, but yeah, just basically just, you know, hands on with a patient is what I primarily do. And I did mm-hmm. before we got an administrative assistant. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope that now, um, now that we have her on board, I'll be able to kind of get back to that patient care that I really enjoy. Yeah. You know, I, I really, I really like um, right now, I'm especially working with my husband, feeling like I have um, an opinion that matters. Mm. Um, so, you know, typically, and, you know, maybe you might feel the same way um, working with your husband, but, you know, sometimes when you're, you're working with other vets, they mm-hmm. don't entirely take our feedback or our concerns seriously. Mm. 
Mm. Um, you know, they might feel that, you know, we're attempting to step on their toes with a diagnosis or, you know, medications. And, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes it might be like, oh, hey, you know, I just want to, you know, let you know, I, I read a paper recently that said, you know, this drug is contraindicated being used with this drug or, yeah. you know, for this illness. And, um, you know, being able to actually, again, ha- as I said earlier, have a voice and an opinion that matters and that, if I say something, um, you know, regardless of if, if my husband decides to take my concerns, you know, seriously or not, at least I can mm-hmm. say I said them, you know, I feel better that, you know, I, I stood up for the patient regardless of if I'm right or wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, and just trying to make sure that we all have our portion of patient advocacy. So um, I just feel that, um the role that I'm in right now just really allows me to flourish as a technician. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's just really something that I feel gets me out of bed every morning. Definitely not the money, but um, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely feeling like um, I make, I make a difference in our, in our patients or, you know, their care. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I often think that I would probably struggle, struggle now working for anyone else because I know if I'm not happy with how something's going, I can, Um, you know, go to my husband and say, right, I think we need to change this protocol or the latest research on this technique is suggesting this and I know it will be taken on board. But I think think that some vets are going to be like that regardless. Like I I think that even prior to me being like that, my husband was always happy for nurses to come to him and say blah, 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 because, I mean, he was a new grad and and he's he's someone who's been nursing for a decade um, and they're saying, I think we should do this or I'm concerned about that. And, of course, he's going to be like, thank you. And I think that you're coming coming about it the right way anyway. We often talk about this on the show that if you want to approach um, any vet and say, I think we should update our protocols or I think we should address this, you need to come with your research, which you're doing in any event. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that I noticed uh, I get asked quite frequently on social media with my with my Instagram page. I do have mm-hmm. a lot of individuals that um, ask me, um, you know, hey, I want to talk with my vet about doing this protocol. How do I go about doing it? Or can you give me the resources so I can yeah. so I can talk with my vet? And um, you know, sometimes there are really good outcomes with yeah. those with those individuals. Like obviously, there's you know there's not you know where my our situation essentially is you know we're working with our partners and mm-hmm. um those individuals that come to me don't really have that advantage i guess you could say yeah they don't um, have to go home and eat dinner with their bed. yeah exactly <laughs> and so it's just you know coming at it from a pure i don't want to say pure professional because i know that you and i do that as well but yeah, you know yeah but also there is a little bit of um you know personal aspect that goes into it too um there's but, a bit you know, of leverage they, there yeah exactly you have to go <laughs> home with that person and so That's that can right. be really uncomfortable yeah, but, yeah um and so trying to talk with those individuals that purely have to go on uh you know the research and yeah. their their voice um is really um is really fascinating to me because that's not really something that I have I feel as though my career has advanced. I've never entirely have had to go um, to deal with um, because if even in the hospitals that we work at too, if I say, Hey, you know, we're going to do it this way. 
um, because of X, Y, and Z, I just look at my husband and he goes, yes. <laughs> and so I know that look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't have that, yeah. um, that hurdle that other individuals do. And so that's one yeah. of the things that I really try to um, advocate for. So if people do reach out to me on social media, I do try to give them the resources, but I also, yeah am a big advocate for doing your own research too. So sometimes I'll just point them yeah. in the right direction because they, you know, you never know what they're going to find along the way. Definitely. It's a good exercise. And I should point out that you have um, a huge uh, following on your Instagram account and I will put a link to it. And it's one of those great um, accounts where the content is really um, informative and educational. I learn things from it all the time. So for anyone not familiar Thank with you. Nicole's account, I will put a link. Now, what is your routine when you wake up in the morning? How do you set yourself up for the day? So that is such a good question. Um, so <laughs> my, um, I am a really heavy sleeper. Um, so yep. I actually have to get woken up every day um, <laughs> physically. So I have, um, it's really funny actually. So we have like three alarm clocks. But oh I will gosh. sleep through. I will sleep through all of them. My husband actually has multiple videos of me just sleeping through them. Oh, so I'm I, so, so he'll like <laughs> he'll he'll wake me up, and then you know I just lay in bed and kind of grumble for about <laughs> yeah, half an hour, and then <laughs> uh, and then I shower and you know kind of kind of get ready. And I'm I'm one of those gals that you know I won't get dolled up to go to work, which I think is um you know very very important. Um, mm. I try not to focus on my looks and more about what's inside and about what I can bring to, um, uh, to the picture instead of, mm. uh, just the physical aspect. Um, exactly. but, yeah. um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't drink coffee or, or tea like a, you know, um, I think most of our profession does to kind of get themselves up and going. I, wow. Um, I'm always impressed by people that don't need <laughs> coffee or tea. <laughs> I would, I would like to say that I could, but, um, so I have interstitial cystitis. So, um, just, uh, a bladder issue that is, um, agitated by, um, caffeine and acidic, okay, yeah. um, beverages and food. Yeah. Um, it is, it is rather difficult, but, um, yeah. you know, we just kind of get up and go and, uh, we get stuck in traffic for a good, for the, I don't know, I would say the first two hours that I'm awake, um, oh, we're wow. basically stuck in traffic trying to get to where we need to be. Um, but what's, what's interesting about, um, you know, I guess our business model and maybe with my routine is that my routine changes depending on the environment that we're in and kind of yeah. the, the location too. Yeah. Well, that's good to keep you on your toes and to keep, yeah. um, every day interesting. And uh, although, although your routine's a bit all over the place, do you have any weekly or daily habits that make your life better? I would say with um, my daily routine, um, that kind of just, I don't know, I would say the same is that I always, and I hate to say this because I'm a millennial and I just, I don't like to use that card, but you know, I, I always check social media first. That's the only one thing <laughs> that I do because a lot of my closest friends are people that I met on the internet. Yeah. And so, you know, they might live hundreds or thousands of miles or kilometers away. Yeah. And so I always want to check in um, with my with my strong friends to make sure that they're doing okay. I would definitely say that that is something I try to do every morning mm -hmm. um, is check in with uh, individuals that maybe I haven't talked to in a while mm. or ones that are struggling with a personal or professional aspect of their life. 
yeah. um, just trying to check in with them and just making sure that they're okay. Um, I would say that at least for me, that's something that's standardized on my end is that I'm always going to be trying to check in with somebody new throughout the day and just making sure that they're okay. So just connecting with, with yeah. um, I guess, these people that you've met through traveling all over and um, yeah. being at conferences and and that sort of thing. Well, that's that's really nice and it's a selfless thing to do as well, which I think is really good for um, mental well-being and wellness yeah. and everything. So, And do you have any strange habits or superstitions? So I would say that a lot of my followers know that um, my favorite TV show is Friends. Uh-huh. And so, um, like, even with my, in, like, uh, my, my videos and my story, if I'm at home, you could probably always hear friends playing in the background. That's classic. Um, and I think the reason for that is just a pure, um, nostalgic for me. So when mm. I was growing up, um, my mom would always, um, would always have it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of my family lives on the East coast. And so it's one of those things where very, um, comforting to me on a mm-hmm. subconscious level is mm-hmm. to kind of have a show playing that was always playing when I was growing up because I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16. So yeah. a little over 10 years ago. Well, yeah. that's a really sweet little habit. <laughs> and, um, now can you think of a purchase that you've made, um, that's positively impacted your vet tech life in recent memory? And I'm super interested in this because from your Instagram account, I know that you guys have really high tech, cool gear and heaps of gear. So, oh my gosh, um, yes, I'm do. interested is, is it something really complex or something really simple? What, what are you excited about? Um, so we recently got, and I'm actually super excited about this, um, two, two purchases actually. So, um, we have about, um, let me think about 18 different, um, endoscopes Mm -hmm. and they were all, yeah, we have, we have a lot and, um, they were all rigid up into, up until I want to say a month ago. And then we got two flexible endoscopes. Yeah, And I have been absolutely so excited to have those in our practice. And I was really concerned with the purchase. Um, yeah. It was very, very expensive. I, um, yeah. I was not told the final figure because um, I just <laughs> probably would freak out. But um, I just know it was well over um, 20 grand um, US. Yeah. Gee. And um but we have recently gotten that, and my concern was, well, we're basically almost exclusively orthopedics, and mm. you know, when are we going to use this flexible endoscope? That's what I was wanting and, to know. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the return of investment, and how are we yeah. going to promote this? And we have actually used it so much within the past month that we almost have it paid off. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, those foreign bodies or, you know, just, just scoping. Mm. So I've just, I've been so elated by that purchase, just being able um, to offer it to our hospitals because they're really taking advantage of it too. And, you know, I just, it's not as invasive, obviously, as doing foreign body surgery, which is really great or doing an exploratory. Um, So I really feel, I kind of wish we would have made the purchase sooner. Um, but you know, it was definitely a huge investment. So it was something that we had to think about. And then 
the other purchase that we made was another rigid um, endoscope, but um, we use it for um, arthrotomies. Oh yeah. And so that has been that has been huge. And we have a lot of scopes of various different sizes and angles for rigid. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But this is just so it's such a fine scope and with such a high definition. And mm-hmm. we can you know do it's on. Um, it's just a very very compact system, and that one was. I know about 30 grand, um, mm. but um, it's just the way that it's kind of shaped our, you know, the w- how we work up a case because mm. we have all these, these tools that we can offer. Um, I really think has changed our approach to um, how we, uh, how we uh, diagnose our patients yeah. and how we treat them. So, um, you know, we, we do like surgery and obviously I know there's a saying that that says um, if there's a chance to cut, there's a chance to cure. Um, and I feel that we're kind of slowly getting away from that mantra, if you will, and, um, you know, working it up a little bit more, um, appropriately, I would say. So those are our two big purchases that I've been really excited about. Yeah, because there's nothing um, worse than a, we call them a therapeutic X-lap. <laughs> when you, mm-hmm. you do an X-lap and you're like, well, nothing in there. That was uh, just so we could do a bit of internal lavage. Yeah. That should help, exactly. guys. Um, and I know what you mean too about those purchases um, that you're surprised at because we recently, um, my husband recently did a, or a few months ago, did a TPLO course and then we bought all the gear and um, I I had to have the news broken to me very gently about the cost of all oh, the gear as well so like, expensive. <laughs> uh, and you guys must have so many kits like tubular kits ready to go but um so you know I had to be sat down and um you know given a cold washer <laughs> for my forehead and everything to hear that news um, yeah. and we were thinking because previously we'd been um doing just D'Angela's um approach to cruciate repair sure. for for a long time and we thought when we switched well we might get to do a TPLO like once a month or once every two sure. months you know because obviously we're in a regional area and we weren't sure if people would um pay for it but now we're doing like sure. one or two a week and it's just awesome. crazy that we're like well why didn't we do this years ago because exactly actually everybody wants the tpo repair so once it's explained to them so it's great when you are pleasantly surprised and you're like exactly. I, think, I think we're not going to go bankrupt guys i'm, exactly. I'm excited <laughs> <laughs> and what I, what I also find interesting too um is that in Australia, um, it seems that TPLO courses are offered um, very, very frequently. So my husband um, has taught maybe 30 TPLO courses in Mm -hmm. Australia. Mm -hmm. And I feel that every single time I would help uh, with the course, that there was just so many people that would come in that have had no experience with it. And which I thought was absolutely amazing because I... And I never realized how big the market was out in out in mm. Australia for for doing TPLOs. So I can I can definitely understand your relation with that because yeah, when we would when we would go over there, and that was one of the main reasons that my husband and I would go to Australia was to teach yeah. these orthopedic courses. And yeah, um, it's a huge a huge investment. I know there was a lot of hesitation on yeah. um, some of the attendees' parts too because it's it's a pretty penny. It's definitely. Um, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no, that's right. It's a big investment in the gear. And my husband was taught by someone from the States as well. Um, 
and and well, I think he got one of the last places in the course and so it's awesome. one thing to be able to afford the course but it's another thing to be able to afford the gear so I guess it's mostly oh. going to be for owning um vets but yeah we have a lot of overweight dogs running around doing stupid things <laughs> yeah which is interesting because I just assumed it was just um greyhounds because I know you have a very large population of greyhounds yeah, um, no, in Australia. I can't say we've seen many greyhounds for cruciate uh, rupture, but yeah. we do have a lot of clients that I like to call feeders. Um, <laughs> that no matter no matter how you try and educate them, they want to feed. Uh, feeding equals love, and um, as much Absolutely. as you try and show them what a proper you know what a decent body condition score looks like, they they think that um, a, a dog with a healthy body condition score is emaciated. Um, and yeah, I guess because it's a very active culture like we have uh, dogs that will get taken for a walk and see a kangaroo and go running through the bush chasing the roo and do their cruciate or they're just chasing the ball or um, you know running next to the ute or whatever it is and I guess the D'Angelo's approach isn't great for those heavier dogs um, definitely not but we're just seeing um, you know the the failure rate for D'Angelo's I think was much higher than the TPLO because um, we would get people mostly compliance issues I want to say but obviously the implant would fail whereas um, Mm -hmm. something I learned from your page is that the difference with the TPLO approach is that you're not actually repairing the ligament you're just tricking the leg into thinking that it doesn't need it is that right? Yep absolutely that's absolutely correct. Yeah, so yeah, we're really happy to have taken um to to have put Matt through the course and taken the plunge. And I want to know about some of your other gear. Like you, like us, would be in the crisis of your brachycephalic breeds. And I know you're doing lots of soft palate resections as part of your soft tissue surgery. Are you using yeah. lasers or something for that? So we um so we actually we don't use a laser. So we use radio surgery, surgery which is um, radio frequency. So it operates at a cooler temperature and um and a higher frequency though. Yeah. Um. So we so we do get um that ceiling that you would with laser, but we get less yeah. collateral damage with it. So yep, with yep. a laser, there, you know the way that it does it actually just burns and sears the tissue. Yep. Um. But there's a lot of research out there that um shows obviously you know when we get burns, whether you know they're in intentional or they're not, um, whether mm. it be laser or, you know, house fire or what have you, is um, you get a lot of delayed healing with that. And um, mm-hmm. with radio surgery, because it operates at a lower temperature, um, and you might see, um, I don't want to say it's smoke. So with mm-hmm. laser, you obviously get a lot of smoke that comes out of it and you need some type of, um, you know, evacuation system to kind of get the smoke out of the area. But with uh, radio uh, frequency, um, the I want to say the smoke, if you will, um, is actually steam, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that radio frequency works, it pulls the water out of the cells to make the incision. Mm-hmm. Um, versus with laser, it actually just cuts through the cells. Um, so we use that because we see with um, when we're doing the elongated soft palate resection, we see that um, a lot less post-op swelling because mm-hmm. we know that when you get burns, you start to swell. You know, you irritate that tissue. Mm-hmm. But when you're operating at a cooler temperature, you're not getting that swelling, but you're still getting that really nice uh, seal and ligation. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely don't get the post-op bleeding with either or. And then we also use another um, device that is purely um, radio frequency too, um, since we're huge fans of the technology called the Cayman. Um, and so it's a mm-hmm. vessel sealing 
device, um, you know, like a ligature, um, what some people might um, might be able to, to compare it to. Yeah, um, and I've that seen is, that. Yeah. On your page, yeah. you use it with um, spays, is that right? Yeah, we use it for spays. And at this point, we're just trying to see what we can't use it for. Yep. Um, so, and that's just been a lot of fun, especially for the days where we have a really light schedule. We're like, oh, what can we use this for? <laughs> um, and so we've done it. Um, we, we like to do it a lot for like liver lobectomies and yep. splenectomies, of course. Yeah. Um, and if we're doing um, some type of intestinal uh, resection, we'll use that as well. It works yep. amazing for soft palates. Yep. Um, you don't have to ligate anything, which is really nice. You just have to pull the palate and then uh, clamp it, and that's yep. it. Wow. Um, but we have um, – so, yeah, so we've been testing it with um, space um, as yep. well as amputations. Yeah. Um, it works extremely well, and we feel that it, they just recover um, just nicely from it, especially with yeah. the amputations, too. You don't have that post-op swelling. Yeah. Um, with spays, of course, you do see, um, you know, with traditional spaying, um, that some pets might have some type of suture reaction to the internal mm-hmm. sutures that you use. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this technology, you don't technically have to use um, internal sutures, ah. um, which is, re- yeah, which is really, really um, fascinating to me. And I know some veterinarians are very hesitant about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you can ligate up to seven millimeters of a blood vessel um, wow. without any strike through. So we've done plenty of those, but we've also done a lot of neuters with them too. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely overkill. You know, we, <laughs> um, we're definitely going guns blazing, but yeah. it's just, it's also really just, interesting to see what we can do with the technology yeah and so for anyone listening going what the hell are they talking about jump on (laughs) nicole's page and you will get to see um all this exciting stuff that they're doing and um it's it's, a lot of fun (laughs) it's yeah it looks like a lot of fun and it's in good on you for taking the time to create the content to share it with people yeah well, um, I'm going to ask you one more question before we just go into a quick break okay. and have time to um, grill you about all the stuff that my husband and I were talking about this morning going, wonder how they do this, wonder how they do that. So, awesome. um, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? This could be in a personal or professional capacity. I don't know if I've talked about this on any other podcast that I've done, Um but we'll talk about it now. It's the scoop, guys. <laughs> um, so um, when I, um, so for people who aren't familiar with me, I actually did um, a hybrid course for my uh, veterinary technician degree. So I did my coursework online. Yep. And then my clinical, um, obviously my clinical studies were done in person, um, you know, at the various hospitals that I worked at. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was managing um that emergency hospital that we were previously talking about, I had um, met my husband and um, obviously, you know, we, this was when we just met, you know, we weren't dating or anything at the time. Um, and, you know, just us getting to know each other. And um, so we used to call him in to do our orthopedics and our complex soft tissue surgery. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was helping get a patient anesthetized for him and he was, um, 
asking me, you know, where I went to school and, you know, just kind of a little bit about, you know, my life. And I had told them, told him that I had gone to school online. And um, so he kind of mocked me um, in front of my, in front of my colleagues. I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I'm a very um, competitive person Mm. by nature. And so, you know, he, he was like, oh, well, you're, pretty good for an online technician Mm. and so I had told um you know my family and because it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because he's you know very well known for his work Mm. and um at the time and I and I guess I still do but at the time I really respected his opinion (laughs) Mm. and and Mm. so it kind of rubbed me the wrong way and I felt really bad about myself and um, how I wanted to go about approaching the profession. And Mm -hmm. so I had made a joke, um, at the time that I was like, well, you know, he really thinks very lowly of me, obviously, um, to have made that comment. And, um, you know, my goal in life is to take over his practice. And, (laughs) um, so here we are five years later and I'm running his practice and, um, we gross about 50% more than he did before yeah. he had me on board. So, and you're like, am I still pretty good for an online? Tech? Yeah. What, do you, yeah. what would you say? <laughs> so um. now he is very um, choosy with his words. Um, and I feel like he has a better respect for um, at least that, that aspect of our profession is that, yeah. you know, we all come from walks, different walks of life that, you know, it's, it's mm. the, in-person, you know, clinical aspect that um, will also really help to make or break you as a technician or or a nurse as well. Yeah, and I think that's really good um, for a lot of people to hear because I know certainly in Australia, I think that that would be the main um, way that people are studying is online. Um, That just seems to be the way of it um, in Australia anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's about what you're putting in as an individual rather than, um, you know, whether you're learning face to face or whether you're learning online. And some people just don't have that liberty of moving somewhere to study face to face. So correct, um, exactly. you were like challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and completed. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. That is uh, definitely a nice victorious point to go to a quick break on. Are you happy if we come back? Absolutely. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkeen. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilkeen contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from you, if you like. You can help too by scoring yourself some eco-friendly and oh-so-chic Radio Vet Nurse merch. Head to my website, radiovetnurse.com, and check out my glass-reusable coffee keep cup. I've also got a lightweight, shatter-resistant glass water bottle. All with Radio Vet Nurse logo, so we know we're in the club. Wink, wink. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Nicole. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing or being a veterinary technician? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, So I think my biggest 
um, my biggest piece of advice that I would give would, uh, would be never to be afraid to say that you don't know something, whether it be yeah. um, how to do a, a test or how, you know, to uh, check a parameter, whether it be ETCO2 or even just as simple as uh, just getting a heart rate. Um, I think it's very important uh, for all of us to admit uh, when we don't know or we're not sure. Yeah. Um, and not only from the patient advocacy standpoint, but that it's also, it's not possible for us to know every single aspect of veterinary medicine. That's right. So, yeah, and I, for me, I don't remember um, a lot of what encompasses general uh, practice. Mm. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not up to date on what uh, vaccine protocols are. I, I maybe have done five dentals in my entire career. I don't even know how to turn on a dental x-ray machine. Yep. Um, and so just kind of knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are and just not being afraid to admit what those are, I think would um, definitely be key because, um, you know, as I said, uh, you know, just don't, don't be afraid to admit um, ignorance and, you know, ignorance yep. isn't always going to be intentional. No. And, and, you know, I think if, especially if we're comfortable with saying, you know, we're not sure, but let me go ask somebody that might have the answer or that does have the answer. And I think, you know, if we become comfortable with that, then that makes us, obviously, we're all human. Mm. And, you know, it kind of humanizes us to a certain extent where I think, you know, in the medical profession as a whole, whether it be on the human or animal side, is that where we always portray that we're supposed to know everything. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, understanding and just knowing that it's okay that if you don't, um, I think that is probably the biggest piece of advice that I would give. It's great advice um, just for, for patient safety in general. And I think that sometimes people just don't want to be a burden to the rest of the team. So um, even if people are brave enough to say, oh, could you just explain this to me? Sometimes it will be explained to them and then someone will say, you're right with that? You got that? And they'll just go, yep. And they really <laughs> don't. And that's why we introduced into our um, business training modules where we actually break down a concept and then um, then we get them to sit a test on it because we found that, um, you know, people would just not want to waste any further time and they don't want to be yeah, a burden. So, so they go, yes, I understand that. And then they do something a few weeks later that makes you realize, oh, actually you didn't get that at all. So when they know they're going to be tested, they're more likely to be honest when the person teaching them says, so have you got that? They're more likely to go, oh, well, maybe this is what I got. What am I missing? Or no, can you just break it down a little bit further for me? So um, it, it encourages that honesty. And I think, yeah, don't don't feel like you're going to be a hassle or a burden. Just say, nope, I don't know how to do that. Please explain again. Absolutely. And um, I and I still deal with that, too. So my my husband, I think he thinks I know more than I do. So <laughs> uh, sometimes if, if we're doing a procedure that I have very um, limited knowledge on what he's doing, um, yeah. like a thyroidectomy, if you will. Um, he'll be like, oh, place the patient in dorsal, lateral, cranial, caudal, and <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, so what now? And then he'll be yeah. like, oh, just flop it on its side or something. I'm like, yeah. why couldn't you just say yeah. lateral? <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, in that, in that aspect, I'm just like, I have no idea what you said. 
Yeah. I'm not afraid to admit that. What do you want? Where I'm like, can you just tell me how to put the patient on the table, please? That's the and... benefit of working with your <laughs> husband or someone you know. And I have another guest that I've interviewed recently and her episode's going to air a few months after yours, but she works with her husband too. And we were laughing that like, <laughs> well, you don't have to pretend you're a genius because they know exactly <laughs> where you're at. I know you're not. <laughs> That's right. So you can be like, you know, I don't understand what you're talking yeah. about. Like, come on, give it to me straight. <laughs> right. And I know the other day for my husband, he was like, oh, did I show you how I, I measure for TPLOs? And I'm like, whoa. I'm like, who do you think you're talking to? I'm like, I don't want to. I was like, I don't want to know that. I'm like, I have, I'm like, I have enough stuff because I know if he teaches me how to measure, then I'm going to have to be, he'll want me to measure for him yeah and I don't yes. I don't want that responsibility protect protect that <laughs> ignorance I feel like yes. yeah and yeah. we both have I've heard you talk too before about you know that's you stay in your lane I'll stay in mine you've got your stuff yeah. to do I've got my stuff to do exactly. so exactly. I think it's important to be like I don't need to understand that just like you don't need to understand what I'm doing over here exactly um, it's very synergistic I would say it is it is and what advice would you give to a student vet nurse or technician struggling with their studies I would always say find um, find a mentor. So I know that a lot of uh, colleges or institutions, I might have um, a resource that you can go to if you have questions or concerns. But mm-hmm. I think what's important to keep in mind is that we all do not learn the same way. We don't retain information the same way. That's right. And so, you know, some individuals might find that they might benefit from somebody who's very articulate, whether it be with the way that they're speaking or the way yeah. that they're writing, or somebody that has really amazing finesse uh, with patient care. You know, everything seems like it's a planned and calculated movement. Yeah. Um, and so I always try to stress to individuals is to find somebody um, that maybe portrays their knowledge in a way that you're able to retain information Mm. I think would be very beneficial exactly exactly and they can teach you their little hacks for how they how they remember things or how they learnt certain things so yeah I think that's that's great advice now are there any bad or old recommendations that you think should be replaced with more modern or useful information oh gosh (laughs) how much time do we have (laughs) (laughs) um Oh, gosh, that could be so many things. So um, I know right now we're dealing, um, I would say, with a lot of um, grain-free concerns with diets. And um, even though I'm 100% in surgery and nutrition is not at all an interest to me um, or a strong point of mine, but um, just really um, I have a lot of – friends that are nutrition uh, specialists, whether it be um, they be BTSs, so veterinary technician uh, specialists in um, nutrition, or whether it be veterinarians that um, work um, in nutrition, mm-hmm. um, being able to say, hey, you know, we know this is a great fad on the human aspect, but, Mm. you know, there's really detrimental um, health effects that we Mm. have on the animal side. And, you know, we're especially a lot of the information that's coming from, at least for us, the FDA, um, as well as our cardiologists in the U.S. and even abroad internationally, Mm. um, you know, we're finding a lot of research that, um, you know, maybe we need to not extrapolate data from the human side Mm. and, you know, place it on our pets and our Mm -hmm. patients. Yeah. And of course you definitely will have to weigh the pros and cons of diets, of course. Um, And again, this is, you know, my advice. 
from somebody who doesn't know much about nutrition. And that is something that I'm letting the listeners know that I'm not your go-to person and I don't know much, but um, that I, I think we can say for anything in veterinary medicine is that we shouldn't be extrapolating data from the human side. That's right. Um, that we, yeah, and that we really need to find uh, and do our own research so that we can better advocate for our patients. I think it's a big issue in Australia too because, and again, I, I've done a nutritional advocacy course that was just part of my standard um, certificate for qualification, but I'm definitely not a specialist or anything, but I do understand that it is really complex and difficult to make a balanced and complete diet Absolutely. for a dog yeah. or a cat. And uh, so often in general practice, we hear a client ringing saying, I want, I want my dog to stop eating X. So and it, it might just be something as broad as dog food. <laughs> and yeah. they'll be like, so I'm feeding kangaroo mince, yogurt, broccoli. Um, I think that's everything. Is there anything else you can think of that I need to add? And I'm just like, oh, we kind of need to refer you to somebody to, to assess, you know, how to feed your dog a, a home diet that is balanced and complete because it's not just a matter of like ticking five different boxes of five different food groups. Like it's actually very complex. So it is a big issue Absolutely. here too. And that's, that's definitely good to know because I know, um, at least in the U S um, using the word nutritionist is not a protected title in the U S yeah, and yeah, so, right. yeah. And so if you go to the pet store, um, you will actually have pet nutritionists that are just individuals that have been hired off of the street that yeah. will just be discussing whatever diet, um, you know, maybe they researched on the internet or maybe they didn't. Yeah. Um, and so it's very important that we get our information um, from reputable sources. Yeah. And it's really um, big amongst breeders in Australia too. Like a lot of people will bring a purebred dog of some sort in and part of the puppy pack information that the breeder has sent has included information that just this mum or dad pet owner um, really wants to follow because they want to do the best for this new puppy that they've bought and it will say do not feed your dog this or that or the other because they'll die and here's an internet link to some story where you can see that dog food kills and you know these poor people come in and they're so conflicted and they're so anxious and we're kind of like just feed dog food and it's really hard to break down um you know the the fear I guess and that's the same as you know fear-mongering in anything I guess um you know if you really want people to believe without questioning you generate fear and concern so um it'd be great to identify who are these reputable nutritionists that we can refer people to and have them actually give some factual information which we all appreciate yes 100 <laughs> percent. there's another one of these things that i wanted to bring up that um i always kind of instinctively believed was bad inf information and again you myth busted and confirmed this for me which is so we would nearly every vet nurse we've ever hired who's a qualified vet nurse and has come from another practice when we're just introducing them to our protocols within surgery they assume that we're going to have a skin prep protocol which includes pre-mixing like a chlorhexidine scrub or whatever 
um, and then leaving the chlorhexidine scrub mix, you know, with the water and with the swabs all in a Tupperware container and put the lid on and put them in the cupboard in a big batch um, of them, I guess. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've never done that. And I guess it's because we learned a lot of our skin prep protocols from, you know, me just doing my studies and you never taught that Absolutely. in your studies. You just taught to mix it up fresh each time. And mm-hmm. so people would come and these would be nurses who have been nursing for way longer than me and they'd say, oh, well, we should do this because this is a better way of doing it. And I'd have to sort of say, um, you know, it's just not within the manufacturer's instructions. But then you um, had a great story that I heard you discuss with Dr. Dave and I've also seen on your Instagram um, that kind of explains why we shouldn't be doing that. So can I hand it over to you to discuss those issues with the antimicrobial scrubs? Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of to recap really quickly, we, um, so again, as I had stated, um, my husband and I, we traveled to, um, you know, a few dozen hospitals in our area. And um, we had uh, an occurrence of patients coming back that had infected implants. And, um, you know, I was, it was becoming so frequent. So we, I think we had a total of nine patients. Mm-hmm. Um, that had to come back uh, frequently uh, to get their implants out. And I just thought it was bizarre because um, up until, I don't want to say up until that point, but uh, we typically only have less than one patient a year. Sometimes, you know, we might have one or two, but there's really no correlation between the cases. Yep. So um, the correlation that I found, because I just, I got really nervous with the whole situation because Mm. it was just it was a lot of them um the correlation was that they all came from the same hospital um so what i had done uh, for the listeners that don't follow me um so what i had done was i actually cultured the scrub um from that hospital and so what my husband and i do so we bring the equipment to complete the surgery but we will use the scrub material or you know maybe sutures or gloves or what have you from the hospitals that we Mm -hmm. go to so they had cultured back positive for um, a microbial called serratia marcesin. So we had cultured those back from nine patients consistently with those nine patients. And I had told the owner of the vet hospital, you know, what we had discovered. I had talked with um, the, um, the lab and I said, you know, what can we do? Where does this bug come from? Because I've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. They had said that this is um, a parasite that is commonly found um, in feces. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find it very frequently in sewer water. You can also find it in your bathroom, like around your toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, if um, especially for individuals that clean bathrooms, it's typically the pink type of um, residue that you'll find maybe in your bathtub or maybe around your toilet. Um, That's what it looks like when it actually can grow. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had, I ended up telling the veterinarian, I'm like, Hey, um, you know, with our practice and your practice, how can we better advocate for our patients? And so I had gone into you know, how do you make up your, how do you make up your scrub? Mm. And so the individual that was in charge, I had her walk me through the protocol of, you know, how she makes up her scrub. So she got uh, gauze squares, maybe two by twos, um, put them in Tupperware containers, brought them over to the sink, uh, filled them up with tap water, and then would put the chlorhexidine in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once we got to that point, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So um, I had done an extensive amount of research on, you know, what scrub protocol should look like. And obviously there is a ton of variation 
on, you know, scrub protocols, could it be because, and as disgusting as this might be, could it be because the individual that is scrubbing the patient, are they wearing gloves? If not, when was the last time they went to the bathroom and did they wash their hands? You know, you can't obviously ask those questions. Um, But, you know, just obviously trying to be as aseptic and sterile as possible. So, um, you know, and there's there's so many different standards of care that you can use. Ideally, we, we want everything to be standard. We mm-hmm. never want um, the scrub component, whatever that might be the solution, to leave the manufacturer's bottle um, unless you're going to use it right then and there. So we don't mm-hmm. want a pre-mix scrub mm-hmm. um, prior, you know, a day or two days before we do the surgery. We don't want to store scrub because if you culture your scrub container, 10 times out of 10, you will grow something that you shouldn't be growing. And I think it's a lot worse. I think people are mixing up big batches of scrub and swabs that are lasting for like a week or two. Mm -hmm. And I would even dare to say months. Yeah. And, um, you know, and again, sure, we can combat a lot of that with antibiotics, but we're contributing to a bigger problem at that point. Yeah, um, that's right. Antibiotic the, resistance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it doesn't and save that much time is what I never understand. Like it's you could understand if it if if it was really cost cutting in some way that you're like, oh, now I have saved all this time. But it's just not really a time consuming thing to do to mix up a fresh scrub mix. Exactly. And it's, it's really not. And that was my concern, too, because now my husband and I, we've kind of taken the reins on scrubbing. So I will yep. always be the one scrubbing um, the patient. Yeah. Um, and it will always be um, scrub that has originated from our practice. Yeah. Now, the gloves that I use may or may not be ours or they'll be uh, the hospitals. Um, that might be a very minute portion of yep. the protocol. But um, we've kind of taken uh, the reins on it completely. Um, mm. Another aspect um that we should be advocating for that even my husband and I don't do um, is we should be sterilizing our clipper blades mm. and mm-hmm. we should, we shouldn't be reusing them from patient to patient. So it's, mm. it shouldn't be as simply as just scrubbing them with a brush. We should sterilize them yeah. and then open a new one for every patient. Yeah. Um, Which is hard for you guys I- because you're doing multiple like TPLOs say in one day, like we have a different orthopedic prep procedure where we will be using sterile clipper blades but we will only do the one tplo procedure in the day because we only have the gear to do one whereas you guys might do four back to back yes absolutely and um i know that uh for me it's you know i'm trying not to change so much so fast because i feel like that's just going to set us up for failure Mm -hmm. um but in you know within january from up to this point we've really changed a lot with our with our scrub protocol and if you had asked me last year this time i would have been like a scrub and get the patient on the table but now knowing the why behind the how and why you know why do we do it a certain way um and especially having firsthand experiences having all those patients come in and being like oh my gosh this is even though the scrub didn't directly come from our practice yeah we had a factor in them getting this these infections and we need to do something about it and not really because you know we don't want to inflict harm obviously that's not why we got into this profession Mm -hmm. and knowing that I had a role in that was just 
was very um was a hard pill for me to swallow yeah and i i've recorded another episode um with a veterinary nurse named carol who works at university of melbourne and she just knows so much about um asepsis and and sterility and it was after her episode that i really realized the importance of all of this because um one thing that we chatted about after our interview you know she said do you do you need me to give you any information on any anything and i said no we just don't have any issues um with infection or anything like that except when we're maybe doing um, orthopedic surgery that involves like a, a femur or something like that and I realized that there's no point saying oh we don't have an infection issue with um, our spays and neuters or whatever because animals and you know dogs and cats are so resilient that you're probably unlikely mm-hmm. to see the effects of your breaches of sterility in those um, cases because they're just able to fight off uh, bacterial infection whereas when you have a like a high velocity impact injury like a fractured femur or you're putting an implant into a patient um, then that's when you're likely to see the issues so it, it, it sometimes is just those foundational really basic practices so always go back to the basics and so for anyone who like in Australia a lot of people would use tap water for scrub Mm -hmm. and that's fine but I guess what we're saying is if you're going to do that then don't put it in a container that is not the manufacturer's container with the tap water and put the lid on because you're going to grow bacteria yeah you're yeah you're literally making the perfect environment for those bacteria and um so yeah the thing that I would say is you know, if you can get a hold of a, a container of sterile water, which isn't very expensive, mm. then that is what you should be using to, you know, dilute or make your scrub with. Yeah, and always use it fresh. So Exactly, absolutely. And speaking of all of the gear that you guys um, are lugging around to practices, like I have so many questions on the practicalities <laughs> of that. Like, <laughs> firstly, are you guys soaking the gear afterwards in like water and enzymatic cleaner or something and then taking it home to process or are you getting them to help you with processing that gear at the practices like there just must be so much work for you guys involved in prepping kits and also dealing with cleaning and scrubbing and and autoclaving and everything so what we do um we so we've tested it a few different ways kind of to see what makes the most sense for us we have so right now what we do is um when we're done with the surgery is we just literally will just wrap everything back up throw it in in a container and then address it at the end of the day yeah um we have had days where i have been able to manage to clean them while you know whether it be while my husband is sewing up and there just happens to be like a sink in the operating room and i'm just i'm just rinse everything off really quickly but I would say 9.9 times out of 10, uh, we just bring them home Mm. and then we clean them here. So even if we're doing surgery for four or five hours a day, there's typically about three to four hours more of work uh, that we have to do when we get home. Mm, And so it's cool. Yeah, it's just cleaning, recharging um, the batteries, stocking the screws. And then autoclaving um, all the instruments and then packing for the next day. And it's just massive, like for anyone <laughs> listening that doesn't do um, 
you know, complex orthopedic procedures, like with with us just starting to do TPLOs, the the feedback we're getting from all of our nurses is, oh my god, it's just so much gear, so um, much stuff, absolutely, so <laughs> yeah. So it's impressive. And are you having to pack contingency gear? Like, what if you um, open the joint and you find that the diagnosis is actually more complex? Like, what if you're expecting a cruciate and you've got a luxating patella as well? Like, or are you? Do you guys sort of confirm? the diagnosis before how does that work so typically what we do um, is hospitals will send us a medical records um, as well as x-rays beforehand mm-hmm. um, they we definitely do get misdiagnoses quite frequently yeah um, probably more than we should but you know you can only tell so much when the patient isn't anesthetized yeah um, right. and then even yeah and even some dogs that have a cruciate tear only 60% of those dogs will have a drawer sign yeah and so you still will have those patients that you know might have a cruciate tear but might not clinically yep. present as if they do until we actually get into the knee mm. um, we have had a case recently where we um, so we have a very large radius of where we try to. So typically it's about 100 miles north of where we live, um, as well as south, and mm. then all the way to um, the coast. And then we have the mountain chain. So it's about a 100 mile um, radius that we have. Mm-hmm. And so we had driven two hours to a hospital that had um, a pet with a misdiagnosis, and mm. we didn't have the instruments with us. So oh. um, the dog had, um, it was we should have known this and I had actually mentioned it and as a joke and yeah. um, it was a nine, it was a 90 pound dog and it was diagnosed with bilateral luxating patellas. Yeah. And I'm like, that's just bizarre. You know, you don't, typically don't see a dog um, with uh, especially that size with luxating patellas. Yeah. I bet it's a cruciate. So yeah. we had packed up gear for, you know, patella luxation two and a half hours up there and it's cruciate hairs. Oh. So, so not very fun. Um, yeah. So, depends on the size of the animal so yeah. if it's um if, if it's a smaller dog we can typically use the same if it's a misdiagnosis to where we're doing it we're supposed to be doing a cruciate but it's an mpl or it's a cruciate with a luxating patella mm-hmm. um we typically are able um to do the do the surgery so we just kind of mm-hmm. um whether it be we just change the rotation of the tplo to address the patella luxation or mm-hmm. if we if we deepen the groove you know we we do have certain tricks but yeah. um we have had issues we had one maybe my husband will hate me for saying this, but that's okay. Um, we had one, I think it was like a week and a half ago where we were supposed to be doing like a shoulder OCD. So the dog had an osteophyte in the shoulder that was causing great pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the doctor who had seen the dog um, had it anesthetized by the time we had gotten there had told us the left shoulder, it was actually the right shoulder. So, mm. um, and even the radiologist was like, Oh, it's the right shoulder. And we were like, Oh, there's nothing in the left shoulder. It's uh, probably the right shoulder. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, that's just kind of, I guess what comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, sometimes we're able to finesse it and to dangle it to where we can still perform the procedure. Yeah. Um, but if it's just blatant, um, you know, lack of care, um, or a lack of documentation, then we, we do charge a very significant fee mm. um, for misdiagnoses. Mm. And because it cuts into doctor's productions, they typically do a better job the next time. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
yeah yeah absolutely yeah you need to be able to rely on that if you're driving all that way and yeah my last question on the practicality of it all is uh, when you're doing your anesthesia planning I guess a really difficult thing to to know how to do is to and I guess locums would be great at this but it's not that easy to go into a different operating theater every day and use different anesthetic machines and because you visit the same ones I'm sure you have a rough idea in your mind of oh this is the clinic where the the machine's a bit leaky or this is the clinic where the heat mat's (laughs) a bit dodgy or this is the clinic where they don't have great warming like um do you have a minimum minimum requirements? Like, do you need? Uh, will you work without blood pressure, or do you need multi-parameter monitors? Like, um, how are you? How are you managing? I guess that challenge. So at first, it was really difficult, and we really didn't. Um, I don't want to say that we didn't care, but it, we didn't really have a good solution. Yeah. Um, when I first started working with my husband, um, at this point to fill in that gap, because we do go to hospitals that they have the equipment, but that it's all the way up on their shelf and no one can reach it. So they've (laughs) never pulled it out since the hospital has ever been open. Um, and so we, um, to fill that need, we actually bought, um, a a multi-parameter unit where we can fully monitor all the way from ECG to ETCO2 and blood pressure from a handheld machine. That's great. Um, and so we, we filled in that gap. So we have had issues. Um, where we go to hospitals and their soda lime container is completely purple. <sighs> and so um, at that point, I'm like, we're not starting surgery until somebody swaps this out for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we have hospitals that we go to, um, and we do have ones that have, you know, really old anesthesia machines or really old, um, you know, maybe uh, rebreathing uh, circuits on them. I will, I'm at the point now I just throw them away. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, and I'll tell them afterwards because I'm like, you, because if, if I go into um, surgery and the first thing I do is I pressure check the machine. Yeah. If it's, if it's not uh, pressurizing, you know, I, I'll typically look for cracks. Yeah. Um, you know, especially with the older tubing, I'll look for holes in, um, in the rebreathing bags and the circuits. Yeah. And um, if I find a hole, I'll throw them away and then they better hope that they have another one or we're going to have to reschedule surgery and then they still get charged for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just it kind of boils down to, you know patient care at that point because definitely if I go in and the yeah if I go in and that and that machine is in um, pressure checking then I know they have not pressure checked that machine for any of their patients before yeah even yeah. if even if they weren't our patients even if there were you know spays and neuters that their doctors were doing I know that they're not following pro- appropriate anesthetic protocol yeah yeah and you know anesthesia is so much more than just the anesthetic episode it's you know the before and the after and yeah. so I um we take it very, very seriously. And yeah. so I think, you know, at this point, our hospitals know that they yeah. need to have this done. Um, but we do go to hospitals that, yeah, some of them have isoflurane or they have sevoflurane. Um, and especially with the, some of the anesthesia machines, their non-rebreathers connect to it so differently than others. And so if, if I'm not sure, I always have somebody that works at the hospital just double check mm-hmm. the machine for me mm-hmm. um, and just to make sure that, you know, it's set up right. Because in my mind, it might look like it's set up mm-hmm. right, but, you know, I'll probably have the tubes backwards. Um, so I, that's just something that, you know, we try to be really, really good about because if something happens to that pet, obviously it's a really big tragedy, but it also falls 
solely on my husband's license as well as my license too. And so um, we just, you know, for liability reasons and for ethical reasons, we just want to make sure that everything is going to our standards. Yeah. Um, And if not, then we bow out. um, Mm. They have the chance to improve as well, which is, you know, an opportunity for them too. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a real credit to you that you have your head around so many different (laughs) surgeries and (laughs) anesthetic machines and setups. So that cannot be easy. Um, Now, just to go into our last questions, and thank you for letting me just grill you on a few aspects of your business. But in what ways do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? And if you're feeling overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? So I think most people that follow me on social media know I'm a huge advocate um for you know mental health concerns and illnesses yep. um, as well as compassion fatigue yep. um so and I feel that that can be really hard for those who work at the same practice day in and day out for 40 plus hours a week yeah um for me I think I'm in a very fortunate situation um where my day constantly changes yeah so it can be um it can be a little bit more challenging for me to deal with um compassion fatigue or um you know just being burnt out just because our days are ever changing Mm -hmm. um and i think it also really helps too that my husband and i just because of our business model because we do teaching lecturing as well as doing surgery we're able to kind of just close our practice when we're feeling overwhelmed mm, and say, Hey, we're going to go lec Yeah. We're going to mm. go lecture here or, yeah. or do something else. But on the other side of the coin is we work uh, a lot about yeah. 60 hours a week. And of yeah. course, I'm sure you know that too. Yeah. Is you never, you never really clock out when you own a practice, You don't. No. especially when you own it with your spouse. Yeah. Um, because it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of work at home. Yeah. Um, but you know, I um, I have been a very big advocate, and I I'm not secretive about the fact that I do go to therapy, and I think everybody yep. would benefit from it. Definitely. Um, I know in the states, a lot of our um, the insurance coming from our employers will actually cover um, mental health um, you know appointments, whether they be yep. on the phone or in person. Yeah. Um, and to find out exactly what those benefits are because um, it's very beneficial. Mm. Um, we did have one of our coworkers uh, did commit suicide two months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked at one of the ERs that we go to. And, yeah. um, you know, some of those things, um, even his uh, direct coworkers were obviously very um, blinded by the fact that he did that. You know, nobody yeah. expected that. Yeah. Um, and I would say just, you know, realizing that, we're not, you know, we're not alone in our struggles. Everybody deals with it. Yeah. Um, especially with the area that I live in, you know, everyone knows Seattle for being very dark and dreary and rainy. And um, so we, by nature, because we live in this area, we all lack vitamin D, which we all know is very um, beneficial to our mental well-being. So yeah. we know that vitamins, antioxidants, um, it's just it helps with our stability, our mental stability. Mm-hmm. And so knowing um, what you need to supplement yourself um, mm-hmm. to keep yourself going and keep yourself happy is important too. Um, I'm finding that I'm trying to hang out or be friends with individuals that aren't 
in our profession. Mm -hmm. Um, I love having individuals that know exactly what I deal with on a daily basis, Mm. but finding other individuals that can talk to that have maybe the same interests as me, but in something different is, has also been really appropriate. Yeah. So I'm not completely blasted by veterinary medicine, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Definitely. So trying to at least find a balance. So for me, I made um, a somewhat of a, of a weird jump. Um, I started going to trivia night with a bunch of people that I don't know. That's so cool. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I've enjoyed it a lot. And yeah. it's just, you know, we, it's just a bunch of people. We have like a lawyer, we have myself, we have an accountant, a yeah. real estate agent an artist and we have no idea what anybody does for jobs. It's healthy. And yeah. And we just, you know, we find things to talk about. Yeah. Um, and I also, for me, um, I don't, I don't drink alcohol and that's just because I just never had it around when I was a kid. Yeah. And then because I just love learning, I never really had time to get into that. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just like school, college, degree after degree. Yeah. Um, so I, I know individuals that do um, that do drink. They do have higher levels of um, mental illness and yeah. um, higher incidences of um, you know depression. Yeah. But just fine if you have those vices. That's that's completely fine because everyone does. Yeah. It doesn't make you a bad individual. It doesn't make you um, bad at your job or bad at you know being a spouse. Um, but just being able to know what your limitations are yeah. and then just using your vices responsibly is something that I always advocate for. Mm. Um, so another, um, another aspect of myself that a lot of individuals know on my, um, on my page, and I have talked about this in previous episodes is that I have struggled with a uh, drug addiction in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and this year, my new year's resolution was to kind of get a better handle on the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, um, so now I go to two therapists. One is um, just to kind of help me get a better handle again on my vices, even though I don't drink mm-hmm. um, in a way that I can uh, protect myself and protect my patients, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as with um, my other therapist is for just personal reasons. So mm-hmm. my husband and I go together. Mm-hmm. So just know, just know that whatever you struggle with, there's always going to be someone out there to help you. Mm. Um, and, you know, just don't be afraid because we all have something that might be different and quirky yeah. and not so good about us. And you're not alone in that. Yeah. And I think that um, it can be, it can be really challenging because sometimes the vices that end up getting on top of us and not being great for our mental health are the same things that we turned to to help to help us with those issues Absolutely. initially. Like for a lot of people who who um, have alcohol become a problem, they initially were using it just to wind down after work and to de-stress. And I have heard you talk about your issues with drug addiction and, and it's just as simple as um, prescription medication that helped you exactly. switch off and sw- shut your brain down and allow you to sleep. And then it's just a fine line, I think, with um, we all have those crutches, be it food, be it alcohol, be it prescription medication, whatever it is that we um, lean on sometimes to help. And then sometimes we, we find that we're leaning too heavily on it. So knowing that yeah, you're not alone and there's no shame, but there, there are ways to reach out and find people to help you. Absolutely. And I think what's really great about, you know, the society that we're building, um, you know, this year is that we're really, I think all of us, um, are advocating for more awareness with yeah. our struggles. And I think that's really awesome that, yeah. 
you know, where whether it be um, social media or whether it be even, you know, celebrities or our employers that we're all advocating and we're all raising awareness for whatever issues um, that ail us Mm -hmm. or that maybe affect the individuals that we know. So I think even though we might not like the society that we live in at this current point in time, Mm -hmm. I think in hindsight, if we look back 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. we would not be able to talk about these issues. No, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. There's definitely a willingness to to be open about it and to, although we do have the Instagram, you know, pressure of coming across in a filtered and censored and, um, you know, a, a curated kind of way, there is also a willingness, I think, of people and high profile people too to say, this is an issue that I'm dealing with. So that's a willingness to be open that I think we we, we definitely wouldn't have seen even 20 years ago. I absolutely agree. And, you know, I know, as I, as I was saying, yeah, we, we definitely struggle kind of with the the state of what we are in, um, you know, with, you know, maybe our economy or whether it comes to politics, but, you know, not everything is terrible. And I think if we switch off our you know our internet will realize that the world isn't as bad as we think it is exactly that's great advice now we we may have also touched on this next point um through our through our chats but what do you think is the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement so for me i would say um standardization yeah so and i find you know whether it be international or within you know our our countries um i think what can be even said for you know australia as much as it could be for um the united states because i you know i've worked in both countries um is that we we need to um focus on standardization we definitely really lack that Mm -hmm. um in our profession um around the world essentially um, so there, obviously there is a huge push in the U S to standardize, um, our title changes mm-hmm. depending on what state we're in. Um, so I'm licensed in two states and my title changes depending on the state that I'm in, mm-hmm. um, as well as what I'm legally allowed to do. Um, and in some states you don't even have to be licensed to run anesthesia mm-hmm. or to, you know, medicate a pet. Um, so just advocating for that, that, you know, with our human loved ones, we would hope and expect that would be an expectation that the individual who is, uh, you know, working with them, his license has been vetted for, um, because experience is wonderful, but how can we portray that to our clients that, yeah, we have the experience, but prove to me that, you know, you have the knowledge to back what you're saying, Mm. um, primarily just so we can kind of catapult our profession into the future you know raise maybe our wages our benefits Mm. um you know we want to be taken seriously by other medical professionals but we really have no idea what we're doing (laughs) and so we need to better organize ourselves that we can be taken seriously so that is what I feel we could um, better advocate for. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something we should change about ourselves because the more individuals that we have that are vetted for um, and that are licensed that, you know, have can say on paper and in person that, hey, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'll show you, but I'll also prove it to you. Yeah. Um, and I think that if we have those individuals that a lot of our other problems will go away too, Yeah. Um, yeah. such as, you know, diluting our scrub with tap water. Mm. Um, Because if you have those individuals, like as you and I were saying earlier, the reason that your practice didn't do it that way was because that 
you know, you had it literally written in a book saying mm. this, you know, we do it this way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was being vetted by the individuals that wrote the book that have degrees that mm. have advanced, um, you know, learning, whether they're a specialist or a PhD or an MD. So mm. um, I just feel like that a lot of our our issues and our concerns um, would go away if uh, if that was a a bigger factor for us. Veterinary nursing is not a protected term in Australia. So Correct. we're actually exactly on the same page. We just launched um, our voluntary registration scheme for registered nurses and registered veterinary technicians in Australia in April this year. So we're asking people to do the same thing, to get on board and register um, on a volunteer basis so that we can then lobby the government to um, unify the legislation around the states so that we can all um, understand who we are and what we do and maintain our reputation and our knowledge. So Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. And I feel like a lot of us around the world are at the same position. So, and um, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you today, Nicole. I just wanted to know if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the veterinary industry. Who would it be and what would you say? Oh, my goodness. Um, So I have have a really weird one. (laughs) Um. So not a lot of people um, know who this individual is, um, and she primarily works on the human side. Mm-hmm. Um, so her name is um, Rita Liebinger. Mm-hmm. Um, she is this, um, and excuse my language, she is this badass woman <laughs> from Germany. Um, she has completely pioneered uh, orthopedics on the human side. Mm. Um, she is, I want to say, in her mid-60s, yep. absolutely gorgeous, yep. um, so eloquent. Uh, and she pioneered for um, science behind implants and, you know, being, being able to provide just the best, care and the best materials um, with uh, testing and studies behind them Mm. um, to the human side. And then once they had that nailed down, they brought their science and um, their passion to the animal. Um, And she, not a lot of people know her. She's essentially the building block for a lot of orthopedic companies on the human side and animal side around the world uh-huh. um, just because of how she's pioneered and how she's advocated it for mm-hmm. it behind the scenes. Um, and I just love the fact too that she is a female working almost exclusively in um, a male-dominated field because obviously with technology um, and especially with implants and uh, doctors, of course, um, most of them are males, and she's completely just made a name for herself. Mm. And I feel if she is able to accomplish that, and then I should be able to, if I'm able to accomplish a fraction of that, then I would consider myself a success. Mm, love seeing badass women paving the way for yes. the rest of us. <laughs> and I have to say, Absolutely. you're a bit of a badass woman paving the way too, Nicole. So thank you for thank you. all that you're doing to inspire nurses and technicians around the world. And, um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure catching up and I, um, I can't wait to see all of your adventures on Instagram. I will be watching. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.